It was late September, and the Texas sun was just hot enough to be uncomfortable in long pants. Not the first time I regretted not packing my linen turtlenecks. As sweat pooled in the small of my back and spread outward toward my upper hip region, a very light breeze came off the lake at the center of the sculpture garden. So light of a breeze that it did nothing to cool me off. But my bald spot did get a little tingly, which it sometimes does before a rain, too. Waves from small, fast boats on the lake disappeared into clusters of scraggly reeds along the shore. I turned a wooded corner and walked towards a large geometric sculpture, its straight lines and angles a contrast to the wild nature around it. On a slat of painted steel, I spied a small, yellow-bellied bird. "'Hello, friend,' I said out loud, as one always should in nature, and I reached for my phone to take a photo." I knew Galinda would get a kick out of an up-close encounter like this. She had loved when I was swarmed by a pod of boxer turtles near Cincinnati. And just as I brought the lens closer to it, it cocked its head right and then left and flew off and kind of right at me. Now I know what you're thinking. Perhaps he doesn't see very well. (laughs) I thought that too. As a person with impaired vision, I tend to project my own issues onto others. "'This poor blind bird,' I said quietly but knowingly. "'It settled on a nearby branch, and I was quicker this time with my phone, "'but as I pushed the button, the bird flew directly at my forehead again. "'Now this time our eyes met as he flapped by, "'and I could see his vision was not damaged in the slightest. "'This keen-eyed bird was pushing me away from it and towards something.' I felt a familiar disturbance in the air, a cold rush of wind, and all the sound of the boats in the lake, and the flies went completely silent, as if swallowed, replaced with the static of a distant radio station. I smelled the faintest hint of ozone and wet cement, and I knew that I was being pulled into the deep night. empty void on the other side of reality, but it's me, Dare Seaver, and it would appear that my physical form has been placed in a kind of stasis as my energy self has been offered the chance to traverse the universal webbing that connects all of time, space, and beyond. Given the situation, we come to you tonight from the enchanted banks of the cosmic Gowanus. And I can tell you that this Gowani also shimmers with magic as it does in every reality. But you can still catch a sex disease from it, so best to just avoid direct contact, unless you want your junk to slide off in a dazzling puddle of rainbows. Now, being no stranger to wild experiences, some of them brought on with a few experiments with mushrooms foraged from behind a commune in Oakland, I know that I have been transported, thanks to that ornery little Texas bird, into another plane of existence. The last time this happened, I merged with a fantastic cup of coffee. I was drinking it, but I was also it. 
When I returned to my original form, I was wired for days, and I went on a manic episode involving a vintage Datsun, a trunk full of succulents, and an online spending spree that ended up with me owning a guitar that once belonged to Charo. Now, even as I say these words that I'm saying to you, describing what it's like here to you, I can feel my energy, my very being, being pulled into the time stream. I've been talking so much this season about my relatives and ancestors, the Seavers, trying to better understand all the genetic reasons I do the things I do, and make some of the mistakes I do, too. Why am I the way I am is a question my wife, Galinda, often asks, and so she encouraged me to look into my past. Perhaps that's why I've been called here. Maybe the Seaver family tree has some strange branches I need to shake to understand this weird fruit that is me. Maybe I can finally gain clarity on the greatest mystery of all. The reason for my... Oh dear. Well, this feels familiar. A police siren wails outside my window. The one that doesn't shut on account of too thick paint and the leaking from upstairs. It barely keeps out the cold, let alone the noise from the city. I hear everything. All the time. Trash day is bad. School letting out is worse. Fights. Dogs. Dog fights. Drunken men stumbling down the street, yelling for cabs. It's late or early. Who knows anymore? I roll over and put my head under the pillow. It's musty under there. And my hair hurts from wearing a hat all day and not having time to shower. The sheets came with the room. Which, looking back, was probably not the incentive it should have been for me. I was real excited about free sheets. I reach for my glasses on the bedside table and in doing so knock over the little foldable alarm clock I bought from a guy with a car table set up on Canal Street. I don't know why I even bother with that thing. I always wake up 15 minutes before the alarm goes off. It once had glow-in-the-dark hands and numbers, but the greenish paint is flaking off with some numbers only half there and others gone completely. The 12 is now just a 2. But it's the one that shines the brightest, and it's my North Star. I slide the glasses over my ears and stretch. I don't smell good. Or maybe it's the sheets, or the walls. A dank human odor wafts through this whole apartment complex like those wavy lines from a cartoon pie set on a cartoon windowsill to cool. I like cartoons. I identify most with the stuttering pig. He's the best dressed out of all of them. And I think he means well, he just has trouble expressing his feelings. I get it. And I also only have one suit. My uncle had a stutter. He's the one who gave me my first camera. I still use it. Even with a broken lens, it makes good pictures. Most of the time. It's almost ten, I think. Well, I should go out and bring the camera. Nighttime's the best for being able to capture people with their guard down. Most honest-like. I get out of bed and throw on my suit. In order to pay for time and supplies in the darkroom, I wash dishes at the university cafeteria. It's not a great job, and the students get real creative and filthy when the sausage night rolls around. I get a lot of very dirty plates sent back on the conveyor belt. I don't wear the suit to wash dishes, but sometimes I have to wear the pants if I'm going out later, and I don't know, there's grease everywhere. I attract it, I guess. Within seconds of putting on a fresh press shirt, it's wrinkled again, even with starch. I grab my hat, my camera, my black canvas bag with the parts to my tripod in it, and I don't bother to make the bed, but I put the alarm clock back on the side table. 
I don't see it, but I can hear a mouse run across the floor by the little table where I eat day-old rolls and sip from a half-empty bottle of yellow finch whiskey when I feel low. I never see anyone in the hallways, and that's by design. I wait till I hear that people have closed their doors or talking has stopped in the halls. I can count the footsteps it takes the upstairs neighbor to get into their room. As soon as I hear 16 steps, then I throw the latch. I head out, lock my door, put my keys in my pocket, and jog down the crooked leaning stairs with the two spindles missing and out onto the street. The air is crisp and alive with conversations and the click-clack, click-clack of heels on sidewalks. Cars honking and drivers yelling and steam hissing from deep underground. On certain streets, you can feel the subways rumble and rattle underfoot. I put the tripod down using only one leg and get photos of couples leaning into one another after leaving a bar. A man in a hat that's way too small. A cigar-smoking mechanic rolling a tire into a garage. But it's not until I get to the park that I see an older woman carrying a most unusual plant that I feel a strange sort of compulsion. I have to take her picture. She's wearing a pink dress under a brown coat, an unremarkable kind of outfit, which one wears because one needs something to have on. She had a large green purse slung over one shoulder and a big froth of hair the color of orange soda. The plant, it was huge. Its long striped leaves reaching up and over her face, bending slightly as she walked. I have no idea how she even saw well enough through all that to even know where she was going. After a few blocks, she finally stood still on a street corner near Washington's Arch, and I ran ahead, snagged a picture or two as the traffic came to a stop. She was half in and half out of the street light, which made it look like the giant plant had two legs and was out for a stroll. I thought it might come out well, and pleased with myself, I found a quarter in my suit pocket and went for a hot chocolate at the automat. It was a whole week before I could get into the dark room and develop the film. I pulled a few extra shifts and got in as soon as I could. What I saw in that paper, in those chemical baths, was astounding and strange, and it felt deeply wrong. On every one of the photos, on every one of the rolls, a phantom image appeared. A blobby-like worm that encircled each form. In every frame, with each person, the effect was the same. A transparent white coil of cloud or dense smoke that seemed to be wrapped around the heads, leg, and body of every person I found. At first, I thought it was the old broken lens that I used, but the images were consistent and consistently weird. And the more that I looked, the more that I saw these wraiths were there on the street in the air. In the red light of the dark room, I squinted to see as each print came into focus and more ghostly creatures appeared. What had I captured that night in the square? I hung the photos up by clothespins on a wire to dry, and when I stood back, I shuddered, for this was something so rare. And the woman with the snake plant, hers was the biggest of all. An enormous thick cloud encircled her brown coat purse all the way to her knees, and something was off with the plant. The plant, it suddenly seemed to vibrate in place. I could look nowhere else and moved even closer to the image. I could swear for an instant the cloud started to move, the chemicals were strong, but now there was something stronger, like the odor of asphalt or the smell of a brake pad wearing away. And I looked, and my hands were becoming hard to see, flickering like static. Okay, wait. D.B. Seaver, other dimensional photographer then. First of his kind and a groundbreaker for the world of extra-dimensional visioning. 
Have Seavers been sensitive to the multiverse this whole time? Have they been watchers? Documenting strange phenomenon. Is that my path as well? Oh, great spirit, or as I like to call you, Dr. Gary Gary, where to next on this adventure in being? The long flat beetles are new. I never had so many of those crawling on me before. They burrow beneath my bark, but then just wander away. They leave me here with loose bark in the middle. It's not okay. They don't speak the same language as the June bugs, the sphinx moths, and the termites that I'm used to. The termites and I have a long-standing agreement. A few nibbles a month and then be on your way. These long ones, though, are another story. They arrived late last summer, as far as I can tell. I heard from a cluster of lindens near the river that they sailed in on a shipment of sour-looking shrubs that were headed for the park, the one with the arch that they're building. It's a very nice park, or it will be. But some choose not to remember that the whole place was the site where poor people were buried. I know, because sometimes a spirit would get lost using the root system we've developed, or need trees' assistance finding the way up and out of down there. I know firsthand that it's disorienting for people to be alive in that way, which is a way that they're not used to or can even imagine. I recall one old spirit who took almost a year accepting her condition, kept screaming for a life raft and calling out for fresh stew. Some of the older oaks and I, along with a column of maples, linked up and offered some soothing tree knowledge, and she calmed down, and we watched as she floated peacefully up and over the city into the clouds above the spire of Trinity Church. We're here all the time and bursting with wisdom, but people don't think to ask any more. It's dark tonight. I'd say darker than normal. I think they must have turned off the bright lights that they've been putting up everywhere with their buzzing and their crackling. It doesn't feel safe to be around them, and it's not. I heard from a city hall honey locust that a worker got snagged in the wires and cables trying to make a repair. He was caught like a spider in a web of deadly electricity with blue flames sparking from his mouth and his fingertips. They ought just let the night be night, and that way we can all get our rest and do the things that we do when the stars and the moon light our paths. The pigeons don't know what to do when they see those lights. They start waking up and looking for food, when in fact they should be sleeping or fixing their nests. I've known pigeons to simply fall down in the middle of the day for lack of sleep. It shouldn't be funny, and it's not, but it is, because pigeons aren't bright. And that is very well known, just as the dirt of the fungus who have been here the longest. Now, all trees are smart and ancient, and did I say all? (laughs) Not all, (laughs) by a mile. There are some trees who wouldn't know a stick if it grew out of them. But most have been part of this system for a while and were eager to share, should anyone ask. Now, in my case, I'm a hybrid, part man and part matter. For at one point, I fell down in my yard full of things. Tiny figures and mirrors and balls and old dolls, spinning whirligigs, and all spread through the garden. I made everything myself and for my own enjoyment, and to see the smiles of people who took carriages through town. But at some point I felt my chest tightening within, and I dropped to the ground by the shed where my tools were all hidden. Not having children and my wife having left me, I became a part of the earth, and the earth part of me. I traveled via mycelium, Merged briefly with soil, nurtured tall grasses, and followed rainwater streams to creeks and then rivers. Eventually I ended up here in New York and snagged my being on a seedling which grew into this tree, and the city grew around me. 
And so now I know all the things of the trees and the wisdom of plants, and I never once think about my old life as I lived it, except that I would gladly offer a branch or a limb if it would help someone make their lives a little less lonely, to be used as a spindle or a whirligig blade, to make a little wooden cat reach up to a saucer or a man in a boat row back and forth, and to know that someone driving past would catch a glimpse and then smile. It's so dark now, and I kind of like it. I almost hope the lights never come back on. I'm related to a tree ghost? Wow, that's really something. Unexpected jump, that was. You know, I'd like to meet a mean tree. Just once. A brambly, thorny, over-it tree who's not ready to have you take off its arm or make it into a canoe. Just like, get the hell away from me. I'm a tree. F off. An F off tree. <laughs> I'm sure they exist. Probably a cactus out there with no time for you. Oh, there's so much I don't know about the universe. But I don't mind knowing that I have access to an ancestry of tree spirits. No wonder I get a little vibration when I'm in a backyard. I always have. People say, do you want to see my backyard? And I always say yes. And now I know it's because those are my relatives. I almost don't want to see any more. I mean, one listen to that podcast, The Thing About Pam, and you can tell I must be related to Keith Morrison. I want to talk like him all day, and I already do. Maybe we're cousins, or we could be. It's really something I should... I love what I do. I can hold this pose for hours. Just me in a tall hat, some buckle shoes, standing and looking kind of shocked and dismayed. Very dismayed. While looking at my friend Bert Gunderson, who on this day is dressed like my angrier pilgrim twin. He's holding a Bible and kind of silent screaming at Millie Traps, who has apparently been up to no good, turning cats into demons while her husband's at work in the fields of the barnyard. Millie's standing with her head held high and not intimidated by Bert, which is easy to do because Bert's not at all intimidating. Small features and a little tuft of reddish-gray hair on the top of his head, and without his thick glasses he normally wears, he has trouble focusing. I keep catching Millie watching a thin strand of drool dropping from Bert's mouth, because we've been at this for so long, and Bert is committed to getting his pose right for the diorama makers. But the side effect is, Bert's drooling. A lot. And once Millie sees me looking at her, looking at the drool, she scrunches up her face and we both start laughing, which we try to stop on account of Bert's seriousness. And then it becomes the kind of laughing you just can't extinguish because you're trying not to laugh. Stan, the lead artist on the colonist-era dioramas at the museum, calls break, and Millie and I nearly collapse onto the floor as Bert wipes the spit from his mouth and chin with his sleeve. I don't know why I have to play the bad guy here. I'm always the guy shouting. (laughs) You're just so good at condemning people for things they didn't do, Bert, I say, a reference to an incident with shaving cream and a missing brush from a few weeks back. I bet all the girls positively drool for you, Bertie. Millie starts laughing again, and I do too, because it was a lot of drool. We grab sandwiches from the folding table. Millie sips from a metal thermos of hot tea she makes at home from pine needles and honey and rose hips her mother sends her from New Jersey. As we eat, a team of painters touches up the pink-blue sunset and gathering clouds that fills the sky above our New England scene. A beautiful day for a witch trial, I say, in between bites of tuna salad. We've done 12 of these scenes so far. My favorite was The Early Man Discovers Fire. I got to carry a mammoth tusk as if I had just come back from the butcher. 
Millie was a surprised cavewoman in a fur bikini, and Bertie was an angry neighbor who refused to believe that fire would amount to anything more than a passing fad. At least that's what I told him he looked like. The guys and gals in the modeling room really captured my wide-eyed appreciation in that one, although the Neanderthal hairline left a little to be desired. Millie decided her name would be Skipper, although I said probably it would be like Augie or Blurg or something. She stuck with Skipper. We named Bertie Yarg, but we didn't tell him. We all found the job through the papers. There was an advert for museum models. I guess we all had malleable enough features and generic enough-looking frames that we got it, which is a sort of compliment. Either way, I'm glad to have it. I kind of wonder if people 50 years from now will look at the dioramas and consider who modeled for them, if they could even tell it was all the same group of people. I had to put on a scuba mask for one of them last month, where I was a Polynesian pearl diver. Luckily for that one, the folks sculpted out my midsection and made me look a little more athletic. But my eyes are still the same, and my jawline. That was a real stretch for me. I've never been diving before, and I have a fear of shelled animals. Who knows what's going on in there? I'd never stick my hand in a clam or an oyster. Snails? Escar, get me out of there. And what is that material made of? Tooth? Bone? No thanks. Imagine growing a house out of your own tooth that you have to live in. I'm getting queasy just thinking about it. We pose, the artist sketch, then the model makers take measurements. They consult with the environmental designers, and we try on various period costumes so that once the look is established, the lighting riggers can come in to work with the technicians to make sure that the shadows and the light is just perfect. If it's sunset or underwater, you really don't think about light, but it's important. A poorly lit caveman can go from informative to terrifying pretty quickly. <laughs> just ask Bert. One day we came in and Bert's yarg was so hilariously mean-looking we all doubled over. Bert was having none of it and wanted to lodge a complaint. But a few seconds later, Mr. Minettos flicked a switch on the panel and all was back to normal. Mr. Minettos loved watching Bert get upset just like the rest of us. That day, Bert also smelled a little like booze, but he still delivered one of the best angry conquistadors I'd ever seen. I guess I do worry about him a little. Millie brought in a pack of funny cards to play with the other day at break time. She called them Tayro, and they weren't like any deck of cards I'd ever seen. Lots of devils and swords and men wearing robes or women in blindfolds. She said it was an Egyptian game where the cards told your future. We were all dressed like pyramid builders that day, so it was fitting. Of course, Millie got to be Nefertiti, which meant she got to wear a fine golden headdress in the shape of a snake and had fancy eye makeup drawn onto her face. She wore a straight black wig over her tight black curls, which she had to pin back and flatten to fit. Ten of Cups... Ace of Wands, Wheel of Fortune. Millie explained each one as people on ladders fine-tuned the lights behind us and a few large papier-mâché blocks were moved into place. The lovers made my body turn red and I went flush in the face. Now hold on, what's that one? Millie explained, looking into my eyes, that I would go on to have a successful love life and that I would be blessed with love in return. And then she said nothing and looked back at the cards. And then I said nothing. And the artist worked behind us, positioning funeral urns and palm trees and marking out the lines where the Nile would go. Then Bert came by eating a donut and asked, What is that, rummy? Some kind of poker? And we laughed and said no, then Millie put away the cards into a little velvet bag. Bert then told us about the time he lost at poker and had to walk home 40 blocks because he bet all his cab fare and his favorite wool cap to boot. But my heart kept on pounding the rest of the day and I felt a little woozy and glad when we broke early due to the wrong kind of paint. The next day we had off, so I wandered downtown. I stumbled into a place that sold cameras and strange plants and all sorts of rocks. 
It had books on the shelves from the floor to the ceiling, and it was hazy in there under a thick layer of smoke. But not the usual smoke in the bars or Grand Central, like purple smoke that felt good to breathe in. I suddenly considered that my clothes were too tight, and I thought about sandals for the first time ever. A small man in high pants who I had not seen before rose his head from behind a tall pile of books and said, Here, you should see this. And from under the counter he pulled a velvet bag just like Millie's. He pulled out a tarot deck, too. And I said, Oh, yes, I'm familiar. And he said, I know. And I said, Okay, how do you know? And he didn't answer. But then I said, No, really, you can't possibly know. I've never been in here. It's like in the movies where someone goes up to a haunted house and the door opens. How do they know someone was coming? unless they heard the car pull up. But usually it's raining, and those doors are pretty thick, so you'd have to be listening for a car in the first place. The point is, something seems odd, and this isn't a movie. An awkward silence went on, and I finally just shrugged and said, I guess we're just going to have to agree not to address what's happening. And he starts pulling out cards, and I feel my heart begin to hum, and my arms go limp, and I look at the upside-down wizard on the card, and I start to fall into the counter. creature version of me. Wow, I gotta know what happened to that guy, who I know by instinct and spending time in his body was named Desmond Seaver. Hold on a second, let me call up my virtual ancestry app and just check in and see if he was all right after we separated. Getting the frequency. Okay, here's something. Desmond Desi Seaver ended up buying that little store, and for the next 30 years he would own and operate the Seeker's Path on East 12th Street. The shop offered the widest array of rare and imported tarot decks crystals and were among the first in New York to offer free counseling for those suffering from addiction and rage. Millie moved to Newark to take care of her mother and got a job at Johnson & Johnson. Bert stayed on at the museum modeling for most of the animals in the Hall of North American Mammals and a few of the gems in the Hall of Gems. If you look closely at the meteor, you can see it's pretty angry. Oh, well, I always thought there was something about that big space rock. So interesting. So many family members with fascinating lives. I'm pleased to know that one was an early ectoplasmic photographer, another one contributed to the wisdom of plants, and another saw the financial opportunity in selling New Age goods. Lots to be learned there. Isn't it amazing how our paths are set for us before we even exist? Like coming upon a mountain and seeing that there's a trail from all the animals worn into the ground telling us where it's safe to tread. Sometimes we have to break away from that, but it's comforting to know that it's always there, a line through time and space. We make new ones or extend the old ones either way. Some of this is destiny, and I'm very good with destiny. Ah, must be time to get back in my body, which I hope is still intact. There's no telling how long I have been here. Perhaps I'll come back a very old man or a pile of bones, but I hope not. As I make my way back, I just want to thank you for listening, and remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night is independently produced and performed by James Bewley, Season 12 podcast icon illustrated by Lars Litaru. Deep Night Season 12 theme by Zach Gabbard. Music throughout the episode provided by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm. Production studio space provided by Harvest Works in New York City. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Thanks for listening. And this season, I encourage you to leave your portals open.